Pellicle is proudly sponsored by Lochran Brewers Select, a seventh generation family owned business based near Dundalk in Ireland. In 2014, James Lochran established Lochran Brewing Stores in order to supply high quality brewing ingredients to the burgeoning beer industries in the UK, Ireland, and mainland Europe. The business expanded in 2022 when ingredient wholesaler Brewers Select joined the Lochran family, expanding its suppliers within the brewing ingredient and raw material industry. Some of those suppliers include Crosby Hops, a family-owned hop farm in Oregon, USA, Baird's Malt here in the UK, and industry-leading yeast producer Lalamond. Thanks to their support, we're able to pay more writers, photographers, and illustrators than ever before, and invest in special projects like this podcast. Thanks again to Lochran Brewers Select, who you can find out more about by visiting brewersselect.co.uk forward slash pellicle. And now... Let's get on with the show. Hello and welcome back to the Pellicle Podcast with me, Matthew Curtis, episode 50. Can you believe it? Thank you if you've been a long time listener. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time or you're a new listener, welcome. I'm glad you're here with us. This episode, I have a bumper interview with Tom and Ol Fozard of Roosters Brewery in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. Now, I'm in the process of writing a long article on Roosters for the Pellicle website, and I've spent the last year or so visiting the brewery, getting to know Tom, Ol, their dad, Ian, who runs the brewery with them, and what makes Roosters tick. And in that, I sat down and recorded an interview where I wanted to know everything. And I decided to take my good mics to do that so I could keep it and use it as a podcast. The interview ended up being 90 minutes long, which with my intros and whatnot, it's a bit too long to put out as one bumper episode. So I've actually split it into two. So about halfway through the interview or just after halfway through the interview, the episode will end and you'll have to go to episode 51 so you can finish it and enjoy it in a bite sized format. I'll talk a bit more about roosters before we get into the interview. But before we get into that, I'm going to do something I haven't done in a little while that a couple of listeners out there have been asking for, which is to check in and have a think about some beer and pubs I've been enjoying lately. I stole the term check in from a mindful meditation app I used to use called Headspace, wherein when you start your meditation process, you sit down and you have a think about how you feel physically and mentally before you continue with the exercise. It's a principle I really like and my passion and this podcast is all about beer and pubs. So I thought, wouldn't it be great to apply that thinking to what I love the most? So that's what I do. And at the end of it, I'm going to invite you to just have a bit of a think about some beer or whatever you've been enjoying lately and just contemplate that a bit before we continue with the interview. In a few weeks time, we're putting out an article about Andy Parker and Elusive Brewery in Berkshire, written by David Jezudason. I wanted some photos for this article and normally I would hire a relatively local photographer to head to the brewery and shoot the piece for us. 
But Elusive is a brewery I wanted to visit and I take photographs. So I decided as the owner and editor-in-chief of Pellicle magazine that I would go to Reading and do the photography myself. I'd never been to Reading before, so I also saw it as an opportunity to take in the beer scene there, visit a couple of breweries, visit a couple of pubs, and get to know a beer scene that I haven't experienced before. So a couple of weeks ago, I jumped on a train at Stockport Station and headed down straight to Reading, and I spent a few hours visiting breweries such as Double Barreled, which is a fantastic modern brewery and tap room. I went to Phantom Brewing, which again, very similar to Double Barreled, is all about that sort of modern American style taproom experience. There's clearly a lot of investment gone into the latter and both are making fabulous beers. I also visited some really nice pubs. The Fox and Hounds was fabulous. Sparkled cast beer in the South. That's always a bonus if you're me and you love drinking sparkled cast beer. But it really had a great beer selection, great food, great vibes. I loved it. And I also went to a pub that so many people recommended to me, the Nags Head, a proper drinker's pub, 12 cast beers, loads of keg beers as well. It used to be, so I was told, an Irish pub, but now it's very much a beer focused pub. And I finished my evening there before falling asleep in my bed and breakfast. And I felt that in a few brief hours, I got to know a beer scene that had a lot more going for it than I had initially assumed I didn't even get around everything that was there. So Reading is definitely a town you should have on your radar if you're looking for a good place to go on a beery day out. On the day I went to Elusive, so I went down the night before and then I thought I'd have a whole day at Elusive before my train back. I also got to spend a couple of hours being shown around Siren Brewery, a brewery that's been going for a long time. In fact, I actually did an event with Siren. God, it might have been about eight or nine years ago. It was one of my first events. And I remember it because I was talking about the brewery with the owner, Darren, at this pub, The Duke's Head. And I forgot the names of the beers we were tasting. I still uh, wake up in the middle of the night sometimes and yell, broken dream. I remember that tasting for all the wrong reasons. Still, it was fabulous to finally visit what I consider to be one of the more influential breweries of the past decade or so. And the beer was tasting fabulous. The scale of their operation and how they've really crammed it into quite a small space was seriously impressive. But the main reason I was there was to visit Andy and Elusive and catch up with a brewery I've never visited before, but one that I have been aware of since its inception. Andy and I have actually known each other for over 10 years. We were both enthusiastic beer bloggers, Andy really focusing on home brewing and recipes and that side of things, and me being irreverent and annoying, as I certainly was as a blogger and still am now as a writer. To have watched Andy's brewery grow slowly, organically, taste his beers as he's dialed in these recipes and improved his process, it's been fantastic to watch. And now he deservedly has a reputation as one of the best modern beer makers in the country. And he does so from a tiny brewery. It's definitely one of the smaller breweries in the UK. One of the best things about being a photographer on a beer job is at some point, inevitably, you will be asked if you would like to try some beer. And the first beer was an easy choice. It had to be Oregon Trail, the West Coast IPA that has become the flagship beer for Elusive Brewing. And that beer, 
on that day was tasting sublime. I wouldn't actually call it a West Coast IPA. I'd call it an American IPA. It has a far weightier malt backbone than a modern West Coast IPA does. It has a scathing bitterness. I don't mean scathing. I mean, it's just very present and very much part of the drinking experience. And it took me back to some of the first beers I drank when I started visiting the US 13 or 14 years ago. In fact, it reminds me strongly of Oscar Blues Dale's Pale Ale because it is lower in ABV for an IPA, closer to that 6% mark rather than being 7 plus. And he handed me this beer and I took a sip and I paused for a moment and I turned to him and I said, it tastes like stepping off a plane. And I think that's powerful. Andy has spent a lot of time in the US too. He knows what these classic American IPAs taste like. And he has interpreted that with Oregon Trail so well. And it really does taste as authentic and delicious as a beer made by a large American craft brewery that has been making it for a long time. So that for me, it shows that a lot of care as well as a lot of precision has gone into developing that recipe. And it's no wonder when tasting that, that Andy and Elusive has earned the reputation that it has. So look out for that article from David very, very soon. And what I want you to do now is, as a little bit of uh, guitar strumming happens in the background, is just stop and think of a delicious beer you had before we crack on with this interview. Roosters is a very culturally important brewery. I don't need to go into too much length now about it because we've got an hour and a half of interview that's going to teach you a lot about the Fozards and when they came in in 2011 and purchased this brewery off a man named Sean Franklin and put their own stamp on it and moved it into their home in Harrogate from its original site in Knaresborough and also built a very American style tap room, which is a fantastic place to visit. But Roosters is a legacy brewery, a very important brewery that was founded in 1993 by Sean Franklin. And he was experienced. He already had Franklin's Brewery before he went on to open Roosters Brewery. And he is one of the first brewers in the UK to play around with American hops, which would have largely been varieties like Cascade. And the beer that he made his mark with, his Oregon Trail, if you will, was a beer called Yankee. One of the first beers in the UK to use Cascade hops, which my research tells me really started to be used around the late 80s, early 90s. And it's interesting because back then in the early 90s, people weren't used to these stronger, more citrus forward flavours. So not everyone liked it, but it did earn a hardcore fan base. Examples like Sean Franklin and Roosters also show that the idea that we've been brewing in the UK with American hops for just the last 10-15 years is actually just a load of bollocks. Before the Fozards acquired the brewery from Sean in 2011, Ol, who is the head brewer, he spent about six months brewing with him. And Ol has remained head brewer while his twin brother Tom is the operations manager and deals with computer stuff like sales and marketing. And it's interesting that the two of them, twin brothers, have had quite different lives, but they've come together with their dad, Ian, to run something that's very much whole. But what is interesting about Roosters and why I think they have a fascinating story worth telling is how they're stewarding this legacy, something that's been going for 30 years. 
and for them only since 2011. And they have to manage that as well as trying to put their own stamp of things like they did when they took over the brewery with their beer Baby-Faced Assassin, a fantastic IPA very much in the vein of the aforementioned Oregon Trail. It was really interesting to explore that tension because roosters have a cultural significance because they've been in brewing for three decades, which is a long time in beer. But really, the Fozards have only been steering that for a decade or so. And they're very much a contemporary brewery with a modern outlook and modern beer. And they should be considered as one of the most relevant breweries in the UK right now. But often because of that age, they're as old as, for example, Black Sheep which is very much a traditional brewery. But Roosters, I can tell they kind of struggle with that. And I enjoyed digging into that a bit. Also, finding out everything about this brewery, which is why this interview's so long. Speaking of which, I've waffled on for long enough now. Thanks for listening to me. Now it's time to head over to Harrogate and to have a chat with Tom and old Fossard of Roosters Brewery. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Tom and Ol, how are you? Yeah, I'm good, thanks. So uh, I guess you just mentioned before we started recording that we both have similar voices because we are twins. So I will say I am Tom. <laughs> uh, this is Tom speaking. I am, yeah, really good, thank you. I am Rooster's commercial director. Um, so um, yeah, like I say, we're, we're brothers, but we both do vastly different things within the business. So I oversee a lot of everything apart from brewing. I probably have a hand in and then Ol... Yes, I'm all um, head brewer. Um, as Tom touched on, I mainly focused on um, production, overseeing production here, um, and working with the team of guys that we've got downstairs, as it is in the brewery. Fantastic. And how long have you been at Roosters now? Because you, the brewery's thirty years old this year, 2023, and you've been here since 2011. Yeah, so in 2011, our dad bought the business and um, the three of us um, took over the running of it from the previous owner, which uh, I don't know if you want to, we're going to dip onto that. I would, I would love to that. know. I think the best thing to do is, is to consider, like, I do know a lot about your brewery, but the people listening at home might not know anything. So this is a 30-year-old brewery with a huge legacy and I think... It might be best to start with what you knew of the business before you took it over in 2011. Like, like what was your awareness like of Roosters and its previous owner, Sean sure. Franklin, before uh, you became involved, your family? Sure. I think definitely, like, we're happy to start there. I think we both, as you might, well, you'll get to know as the interview goes along, that we both have come at this from completely different angles, um, despite being twins. So I'll say briefly from my point of view, I... Part of the reason I don't have anything to do with brewing of the beer is I'm not a qualified trained brewer, whereas Ola is. Um, so my way of finding my way into this industry, like I say, we're both fortunate that via our dad and um, his input, we, we now form part of the ownership of the business. But my, my first memories of um, Roosters is when, in fact, we shared a pot wash job back at, in a pub back in the day in Harrogate. And um, what, what was the pub? Uh, the Old Bell Tavern. So it was one of, uh, one of the pubs that we, we were dad's kind of, We were about 17, weren't we, at the time? Yeah, I think 16, 17. So we'd, we'd, we sort of shared that job, and at the end of each shift, we'd get a staff pint and have to drink it in the kitchen because we weren't legal, you know, old enough to go and drink it over the bar. Um, and I, my memories are there was three different, sort of three staple beers on that bar that I just 
rotated around or, or went to um, and Roosters Yankee was, was one of them it was always on the bar it was always just incredibly reliable um, just a really really interesting beer and the, the other two which I'll mention because I still think, think uh, fondly of them and hold them in high regard was Tim Taylor's Landlord and Daleside Greengrass which I don't think they do on cask anymore um, but Yankee was Yankee was the sort of so different to those two beers they're both amber and, and sort of more multi driven and fruity whereas Yankee was just this pale really kind of like head turning modern beer um, so that was like my first memory of Roosters um, and then I kind of ended up leaving that job at the point that I went off to university so I kind of disappeared for, for in terms of beer I probably disappeared for about seven or eight years whereas Old story is completely different it's interesting because Yankee it's one of the first British beers I'm aware of to use um, North American hops I believe there's uh, Brendan Dobbin in the 80, late 80s was doing uh, Yakima Grand Pale Ale but then it was things like Pale Rider and Yankee were kind of like the pioneers Oh, what was your initial experience of, of Roosters before right. you became involved with the business oh so, yeah um, it, obviously it was a, a similar beginning to Tom that you know, we shared we shared this pot loss job, um, and similar again. Landlord, Greengrass, um, Yankee. I quite like some of the Durham beers as well that were on at the time. They they kind of uh, still, um, so I still remember them. But I um, after the we we were both in in sixth form doing you know, sharing that job if you like, and but both at different sixth forms. Uh, Tom went off to university, and I I didn't. Um, it just didn't appeal to me and long story short I went down to the job centre one day and there was a job going at Daleside Brewery other side of Harrogate to where we are now um, and, and that's where I sort of cut my teeth for the first I was there just over four years four and a half years but during that time I was aware obviously of Roosters and of Yankee and of, of Sean Franklin um, but I, I, I probably became more aware of Sean than of Roosters beers because I would see Sean um, I got to know sort of um, uh, in particular a hot merchant and I remember walking into the old bell one evening and Sean was there having a pint with him and and I, and I was kind of like went and joined them and it was it was really nice to just sort of be you know 19 year old or whatever I was at that time 20 year old just be sort of able to be sort of sat in on a conversation between Sean Franklin and and the MD of the hot merchants, you know. And so I kind of got to know a bit more about Sean and Roosters um, within the industry, really. Um, and I, I suppose, uh, yeah, it was just drinking drinking the odd. Again, it was the same, but back in the old bell. Um, but drinking, you know, there were, some of the pump clips are sort of still vivid in my mind that they used to have on, on the bar, whether they were drawn by Sean's young son at the time or... or um, you know things like Scorcher and Hooligan, but the artwork it's still it's still sort of quite vivid. But yeah, that's my my, my sort of introduction to Roosters was more through the industry. And you became involved in 2011, I believe, wasn't it? And uh, so the other partner in the family and the business is your dad, Ian, who sadly can't be with us today. He's, uh, He's not dead. No, yeah. I was <laughs> going to say he might be on the golf course because I know he does enjoy a game he of golf. Is, but um, involved in the Seabrook Exec. Oh, he's, he's in the place, he's Society of Independent Brewers. Yeah, I know he's very, very involved with that. But he uh, he owned a few pubs, didn't he? Yeah. So his so his introduction or his I suppose 
telling a sm the small amount I know about how he probably, he probably came across Sean in the mid 80s because um, Sean Franklin, before he started Roosters, um, did have a brewery under his own name called Franklin's. Um, that again, he, from what I understand him, and this is going back to when we were probably four or five years old, so way too early to really understand what, what, what he was doing. But from what I'm told, that was very much a precursor to Roosters. He was he was already experimenting with different um, hops and, and lighter malts and things like that. So he was he was doing it, but on a much more sort of low key level, and in a market that hadn't opened up because the beer orders hadn't kind of freed the market up at that point, which is why that didn't really last for him. But I know for you know Dad was heavily involved in Canberra around that time, so he would have been he would have been very exposed to what Sean was doing um, in the mid '80s, and then by the time he opened his first pub in '91. Um, he'll have had roosters on the bar when, when that finally kind of became available to him and then yeah fast forward towards the end of the 90s he um, managed to move away from the, the job that he had in the healthcare sector and, um, and decided to take the plunge and create a, a small chain of pubs um, and pretty much every one of them I think stocked roosters they were all Yorkshire based um, you know within probably 20-30 miles of of, of where we are now um so yeah there, w there was a, a strong connection between him him and sean from a supplier um you know pub operator point of view um and that's that in itself ties into how me and all came to really become interested in beer as well was my dad's um you know heavy involvement in camera back in the day and then you know um yeah, just being being surrounded by it all the time. You know, I remember certain weekends we'd go to pub auctions and things like that, and he would just be out buying stuff for this, these pubs that he had, you know, in mind that he was going to develop in time and things like that. So we've always kind of been submersed around it. But I think certainly from the mid '80s, Sean Franklin probably featured heavily in terms of what mm. what was going on. Um, yeah. locally yeah I, um, I've, I've always been quite fond of Arcadia which we uh, we featured on Pellicle a couple of years ago in an article by uh, Neil Walker and that was that was formerly one of your dad's pubs wasn't it yeah that was probably his first more contemporary pub um, mm -hmm. I think he opened yeah so in Headingley and Leeds so had to be a bit different than what he'd done before in Harrogate and Skipton which were more traditional but obviously Headingley having that sort of student population um, it kind of was was a little bit different. Um, it's also very still handy. going very strong. It's very handy if uh, you you get a cricket match rained off at Headingley, yeah, uh, yeah. and uh, you go past a couple of pubs, which kind of filters people out, and then you get to this wonderful beer pub. Um, that was the last time I I went there was after I went to a match that was rained off. It's still a fantastic pub. But coming back to Roosters. Um, your family got involved and uh, acquired the brewery from Sean Franklin in 2011. What was the feeling like when that was happening? Like, uh, Ol, you spent some time working under Sean like during that transitional phase, and this was in Nairsborough, the original, yeah, the old site, the original brewery site in, in, in 2011. So what was that like working with Sean as you kind of took on the stewardship of these beers that all, already had quite a reputation locally? It was fascinating to be honest with you. And just to rewind a little bit, after <clears throat> excuse me, after I left Daleside um, back in the 2004, I went and worked at a brewery over in Skipton. Um, I worked there for six and a half years, and I was very much um, under the stewardship of, of a, 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 a guy who was ex-Webster's and ex, you know, big, really big brewery. Um, and I, I was a production brewer, and it was we made the same five beers for six and a half years. But it, it, it did, 
instill this kind of quality, uh, sorry, consistency and approach to absolutely everything that you, that we do. We as a, as a you know people who make beer, not just uh, as that, at that brewery, but then having best part of seven months brewing with Sean and un under Sean and with Sean and him sort of showing me the roosters way is absolutely fascinating. Um, I just saw a complete different side to um, uh, uh, approaching making this, you know, taking the, the sort of four core ingredients that are absolutely, you know, if you, if you line them up and look at, you know, put them together on a table, the sum of the parts, you know, the fact that I'm waffling a little bit, the fact that we can make, you know, produce something is so far removed from what you what you start with um but the um the decision making um the sort of dedication and, and everything that sean considered really really just kind of like opened my eyes a more and more um and you know every every single brew was was just I mean, his palate was, was incredible, and it compared to ours. But so every single brew, there were you know there were moving parts that if he wasn't happy with this, you know, this temperature or this, the, you know, the, the the level of calcium in this beer, and and everything changed really, really quickly. And it was it was a bit daunting to be honest with you, but it was fascinating because I'd come from this solid kind of six years of you know consistent sort of production brewing, production brewing, yeah. exactly. I, yeah. I I look at it and. You know, my, my background isn't the same as all's, but knowing and hearing all talk about what, what it was like at the, the, the previous place, um, you know, having visited there in the past as well, but I would say, you know, I've heard people talk about brewing as, you know, um, a mix between art and science, and I would say Sean was 100%, like, very much on the artistic expressionist kind of end of the, end of the scale. Like, you know, he, he understood the science, but was far more in tune with trusting his palette like you said and, and you know just really kind of being um, you know just having that creative kind of flair that perhaps production brewing doesn't offer yeah yeah that, that was it exactly really what sense of responsibility did you feel you had to, to what uh, Sean had run because he'd had the brewery for 18 years and like I say he was one of the the brewers that pioneered the use of Cascade in the UK and you know in the 90s where people would drink it and go oh, bloody hell what's that that's horrible and then like a year later be like actually this is amazing I don't want to drink that, that yeah. brown stuff anymore but what was it like like you you, you suddenly had this brewery and, and you you were, um, worked under him for a, a few months six months yeah six six and a half months maybe six months um, but well it was actually um, to, to answer that question that in a way it was um, Sean's sort of request and idea that so we joined what did we join beginning of May yeah. of 2011 yeah and Sean left at the end of November so yeah six six months and it was actually Sean's suggestion that after sort of three three months or so that he took a back seat from brewing and I started doing all of the brewing um but don't tell anybody because um, as soon as, you know, as soon as people would have got wind because he had such a cult following um, in the trade and um, as soon as, you know, the, the worry was that as soon as someone got wind that Sean wasn't brewing the beer anymore, they would already 
have a preconceived idea that it's changed. It's not as good as it was. Um, so it wasn't until, I think, once the brewery actually changed hands, there were some people saying, well, we can tell the quality's dipped and, and this and that. And it's like, well, you know, we can tell Sean's not brewing it anymore. And so, well, why don't you tell us back in August when he wasn't brewing it anymore, you know? Did, did but, the brewery have quite a following? I mean, there's the local camera branches in, in Harrogate and, and The following Yorkshire. was more... It was further afield, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I think one of the things... There's something I might come back to, but from just thinking back to that time, but there was one of the things that we realised or focused on quite early um, was that Roosters actually, is, and probably still is, more than I'd like it to be, quite a well-kept secret. And I mean that in the fact that, you know, we, we're not the sort of shoutiest brewery out there by any stretch, and we... We trust in what we do and we're proud of what we do, but we're, we're probably quite, to our detriment, we're probably not out there sort of like being all bullish and ramming it down people's throats and stuff, especially given the history of the brewery. But I think that's partly born out of part of that history does belong to Sean and obviously we've carried it forward, which we're very proud of doing. Um, but yeah, we found that like we would get, you know, anecdotally speaking, we would get more emails from people in like the states inquiring about oh I'm visiting and can I come to the brewery has it got a bar and this that and the other because Sean had been out and Roosters became you know amongst the first if not the first and I genuinely don't know which is which if if we were were the first but to recognise the World Beer Cup for what it is and the pedigree of that competition and won in the mid noughties won back to back gold medals three years running and you know there's like this was one of the first breweries like I say from the UK to do that so. The, the, the sort of was head- that after you came on or was this, that this was on? that was 2006 8 and 10 he won back to back golds mm-hmm. um, in the same category in the same category so he won twice with YPA 2006 2008 and then he got a silver with YPA in 2010 but the only reason YPA got silver is because a different beer he put in got gold <laughs> so that's the, brilliant we, we found that people and that, you know that was like a year before we took over and we found that people um further afield really kind of knew knew about Roosters because it had won these incredible awards but locally it was still like people in Nairsborough I mean the, the brewery started in Harrogate then Sean moved it to Nairsborough and then we've moved back to Harrogate which we'll probably pick up on but there was just people locally who didn't didn't have a clue it was there so one of the first things that we sort of wanted to do as well as well, I mean Ol's, Ol's first thing that he wanted and had to do was you know he's touched on that the, the quality and consistency was there um, and he, you know, there was pressure there to, to make sure that no one noticed any difference. And that's, you know, Sean's plan worked really well for us. But, but my, my focus on the other side was, you know, coming back to the question actually was, you know, was it daunting taking it on? From my point of view, it was daunting because I'd never worked in a brewery before. Um, but I think what my side of the business that I inherited, there was, there was lots of positives there, but it was... Um, it's interesting. There was a lot, there was a lot that needed... needed um, developing or dragging into the 21st century just from behind the scenes point of view and i mean that from you know the the overall branding or how the office was run and the software that was you know just just little things like that so from my point of view it was quite daunting coming in but then i quickly sort of realized again it comes back to that art versus science thing there was a lot of the sort of not carefree but you know a lot of it was kind of very much based on sean's um, Sean's approach and that, that fed through to, to what the you know how the sort of my end of the business was kind of run was, was, was almost like an afterthought so um, we using that we, we were able to put our stamp on 
on the business fairly early on in terms of just, um, I don't know, improving, if that sounds, I don't know, like putting our stamp on and improving the sort of, the overall branding, um, and then letting people know that there's a brewery on their doorstep and, and just sort of building it from there. Yeah, it's interesting hearing, I mean, we're only like 20 minutes into this conversation and hearing the different approach you have, it's like you talk about this art versus science, but we've got brewing versus marketing and like the completely different approach, even as, as twin brothers, you've had to this brewery, in, and which I think is a key part of your identity now. Um, so that you, you, the branding was a huge thing for you because the, the branding, he probably did, Sean probably did that himself, I imagine. Sean did it himself. Uh, well... Way back when it first started, there was some. He had an artist friend who did some punk designs for him, um, which are still quite incredible. But they proved to be incredibly costly because he was basically commissioning this person to paint them. From I think from like just yeah. just you know like they were true bits of art in their own form, and then turned scanned or whatever I don't know into punk clips, and they they were really good. And then I think that became too costly for him to continue with. So Sean went down the road of creating something himself which is which was very iconic and i you know it led to what the current the red rooster comb on the black background look that we have to our logo now that was born out of um what sean did but it was quite heath robinson in its approach and you know he clearly didn't have any that skill set wasn't what he was trained in Mm. um whereas i came in and we we gave it about six months before We, we didn't want people to kind of like feel like we were wanting to make huge wholesale changes. I mean, but it was important to us that we wanted to put our stamp on it. But I remember when the news broke, some guy at the pub I was working back at, it was actually in Arcadia. I was doing a shift in Arcadia to help um, cover someone's holiday. And a guy came up to me and he was like, oh, I've heard the news. I imagine you're going to rename it Fozard Brewing or something like that. I was like, why would we do that? It's Roosters. And I found it really weird that someone would think that, but then it equally made me feel, it equally told me that whatever we were going to do, clearly some people weren't ever going to be or or certainly weren't going to be ready for us to make big changes early on so we just quietly went about business as usual and planning stuff in the background and then when it came to the rebrand I've got um, a good friend of mine from school who's a creative director at an agency so he allowed me to kind of just go and sit on his shoulder and do things he did at a very very friendly rate for us but so he, he did the physical or the actual kind of like you know um design work but under kind of my a really watchful brief from me and then I now carry that forward and, and do it all in house um, for us now but and you introduced that branding about 2012 yeah mid, middle of 2012 from memory yeah yeah um, it's, it's interesting because you, you took on this brewery and, and these beers like Yankee but we've not talked about uh, YPA Yorkshire Pale Ale uh, Leghorn you know these sort of lower strength proper Cascade, traditional in the sense they're low-strength cascades, but in the 90s they were as cutting-edge as, as beer could have been in the UK. But one of the things I found fascinating is that when you took over, you introduced a new core beer uh, inspired by your love of American brewing called Baby-Faced Assassin. And for me, that feels like a really key point of the, the, the mark of the start of the Fossard era of, of the brewery. Um, so, Tom, you, you talked about me to the, uh, you talked to me about this beer before uh, but how how did you because you, even though you're not the brewer of the brothers you came up with the recipe oh you might have uh, you might challenge this at some point but you you this was a homebrew recipe of yours yeah what, what inspired it so i 
had been working in back in I, I worked in the publishing industry, and when the economic crash of two thousand eight nine um, hit. I lost my job and was unemployed for a while and then got a job back in a pub and really, really enjoyed working back in that environment. Um, But basically was only just scraping and covering my mortgage um, and basically just didn't really have any money to go out or enjoy beer. And I was pulling this, you know, serving these beers and pulling these pints and really enjoying it. So I just started home brewing um, purely by way of being able to bottle something and have a few beers at the end of a shift at home and just really got the bug for it. And then fast forward maybe about a year or 18 months, I left that pub and got a job working with Zach Avery at Beer Ritz in Headingley, another institution of that that kind of Leeds beer scene back in the day. Um, and by that point, I remember on a couple of occasions, I was like double brewing at home, like just absolutely obsessed with it and trying different things and really kind of, I'd been to the States for the first time on my honeymoon and really kind of just started to really, you know, realise what was going on out there, um, away from kind of what I knew at the time. And then, yeah, working with Zach, he was was great and um, was really kind of encouraging and, and... there was a hot call Citra around at the time that no certainly on a homebrew level in the UK you couldn't get your hands on um, and Zach managed to get some and kindly kind of cut it with me and, and I got half of the deal um, and he, 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 he started homebrewing around the same time or I got him into homebrewing I think and he went away and with his 500 grams of Citra did five different pale ales of different blends of hops and whatever and I took my 500 grams and just went all out um, I'd, I'd brewed a really really interesting IPA that was it was actually overly bitter but lacked any aromatic quality at all it was quite flavoursome but a bit harsh thinking back on it and it really annoyed me that I just wasn't getting any aromatics out of what my approach so I just took this 500 grams and just threw it at this 25 litre batch of beer it fermented really well um, and it was just incredible and then I'd created something that was six something percent and tasted really was yeah very very drinkable for what it was and um was really really proud of that beer and because i always because i used to work in publishing i wanted to i always wanted to scratch like a create an extra creative itch so rather than just sort of getting a chalk pen and calling it batch 50 whatever or pale ale or whatever i used to always assign a name to a beer and then design a label and try and make it look as professional on a diy scale as possible so i, I had to come up with a name and that name was born out of it being deceptively drinkable and it was actually would creep up on you if you weren't careful because you know back then we're talking 2000 and that was probably 2010 maybe start of 2011 in fact you know six six point something percent was considered quite strong back then and what was your introduction to these american beers it was around then that that i you know i had my first american ipa when i went to colorado in 2010 it's a story of I've told a hundred times now and I'll probably tell a hundred more, but was there a particular beer that you you tasted and went, wow, I want to make a beer like this? There was one on honeymoon in a brew pub in Vancouver in um, British Columbia. The beer was called Brick and Beam IPA. And I think the brew pub was called Yale Town, but I can't remember that exactly. And it was just, we just happened upon it and it was just an incredible eye-opening experience. It's West Coast IPA. But so, so that would, I remember coming back from Honeymoon and being like blown away by what I tried. But then when I was working with Zach in the shop and we would get occasional US shipments over, the same beer that I know you're talking about was Odell IPA. Like the first time I saw that label. Is it that obvious? <laughs> but, but well, we've had this conversation, you know, 
over a beer before like you know we both for, the, for exact same reasons but I mean the first time I saw that label was enough to just be like this this looks like serious gear and you know first time tasting it and just just absolutely blown away by that beer and still am it's still still my favorite beer um but yeah like experiences like that definitely drove me towards having a massive interest in American American beer American hops in general so Babyface kind of came about like that I'd labeled it I'd, I'd shared some bottles with some um, bloggers at the time and it just kind of got and it was just around about the time that Twitter started taking off and people started talking about it and then fast forward to Roosters um, my, my attention was purely on like I said before I've never worked in a brewery before I need to I remember my first job in day one of the brewery was right go and fill these casks you know I didn't just go straight into the office I did quite a lot of other stuff because I had to because I didn't know any of it um, so it just homebrewing just stopped for me I, I didn't homebrew I haven't homebrewed since Roosters um, but we started getting people asking an awful lot about that beer and this is kind of where all comes into the story and pick it up because it's we there was a long time where I I out of respect for you because I was such a rookie it was just sort of like no I'm not the one who understands how to do this stuff commercially so let's focus on what we've inherited and and, and go from there but it reached a point where it was like we're gonna have to do it yeah I just go back <clears throat> so around the time I'm just sat here listening to to you then but um, if you go back to around about I think it was about 2008 when you first started homebrewing because I remember a time because the baby face when I tried that the first batch of baby face it was like yeah knock your socks off it was great but I, just, I was gonna say that, that's good I thought you might have slated it no <laughs> hold on right because um, we went do you remember we went camping yeah when we I, my dog was a little puppy and yours you just rescued your, you know, your first rescue dog and we went camping up on the up uh, Robin Hood's Bay way up on the east coast and um, like right well we'll take some beers you know so Tom says right I'll take some of the bottles I've made and I thought yeah I'll definitely take some of the bottles I've made <laughs> <laughs> we, went, we went camping and I, took, I had a case of my beer that I'd made and we shared them and Tom what do you think and I was like yeah it's really good you crack on with them I'll that was my first ever homebrew yeah. I'll drink mine you drink yours baby face assassin no no no, no, no. no. this, this okay. particular one when we were camping it was a Timothy Landlord clone Timothy yeah. Landlord Timothy Taylor Landlord clone <laughs> yeah. um, and I remember it being alright but then it was a malt extract and it was like first yeah first dabble into it and then it was at that point I was like I just I knew I liked it as a hobby I, you know my previous failed attempt at learning to, I didn't have the concentration or skill to learn a guitar so I was like I found something that I enjoyed and I thought I was okay at so then kind of went all in with it but yeah that first beer was I think it was better than you think but it, well I, I drank my beer he drank his beer <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, yeah baby face so when Tom like you know when, when we first the sort of dust had settled a little bit on, um, so we're probably into 2012, and and a few people were asking Tom if he's going to brew it, or if we're going to brew it, and it was sort of like Tom says it was no, look we've we've got other things to concentrate on, like we need to you know, it was a joint decision that we do, that, and then we do have a little um, uh, 60 litre kit. So it was like, right, okay, let's... Did we put it in bottles? We put it in bombers, didn't we? Yeah, we did it in, we did it in some... Was that right? Okay, we'll brew it. Just just to please people and shut them up. And then it was, oh, you can't just do that as a one-off. You can't do that. But around that time, because 
Tom had given me the recipe and it was, um, I think we then, I forget which year it was, was it 13 we first did it commercially? Yeah, I think we did that first small batch that went into the bombers in 2012 and then, and then back into 13, I think we did. And we, st- we started talking about doing it commercially and it was, Tom had given me the recipe and I said, well, if we if I upscale that, we might as well just do one brew and close the doors because we'd be skinned. We'd be, you know, the amount of hops that went in it. So um, I tweaked the recipe a little bit. Um, I brought added um, Munich malt into the grist a little just to sort of give it more of a multi backbone. But um, so we did the, the first sort of commercial brew. Was that cask only? Yeah. That was cask only. Um, and it was just a one-off. We did it as an outlaw beer, the outlaw yeah, yeah. project. Um, and we thought, right, that'll keep people happy and, you know. Um, but people were just, they kept on asking and kept on asking and, and it was around, so it, probably, what was it? it must have got to 2014 when, middle of 14, that's when I remember first looking at the, going to have a look at the first canning line. Yeah, I think we put we the got. deposit on the canning line in like August that year or something. Yeah, and we'd started canning in December 14. So we, the conversation was then, well, we, we're going to hit the ground with these cans. I think we were first independent brewery outside of London to be doing it. And, you know, we beat Magic Rock to the... Yeah, there was three yeah. little known breweries called Beaver Town, Camden and Fort Pure. Pure. Yeah. Beat us to, beat us <laughs> to yeah. canning. Where yeah. are they now? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, so, but we, we, we did, we looked at... Um, Tom, Tom obviously went and, and the, the design work on the cans and, and collectively with Tom and myself and Dad we'd, we'd agreed right we need to sort of hit the ground running with a core range of three um, and Babyface Yankee the original Sean's original pale ale was, was one um, there was a beer called Fort Smith which has fallen by the wayside now um, and Babyface Assassin was the other one so we yeah that, that was the one that really made waves didn't it when we when we first started yeah we, we'd gone from like initially like keeping it at arm's length as a you know like I say a little bit of not rushing into things and not changing too much and being respectful for what we did what what, what we inherited but what we decided to buy I mean when Sean offered the opportunity to take the brewery on we were actually already in conversation between the three of ourselves about start, doing a startup from scratch so we were about six months into that process and then no no idea how but Sean I don't think he could have got wind of the fact that we were we were having those conversations because we it was kept between the three of us and um but yeah he, he approached and offered roosters and it was like we thought about it for a weekend from memory and it was just like right let's do it like I you know we we all respected the brand and respected the beer and it was you know we could have we could have gone and forged our own path or you know done something from scratch but didn't really Roosters was just too too big an opportunity not to do um, but yeah so we were trying to be respectful to, to everything we'd we, we decided to invest in um, but yeah by the time we came around to Canon it was just obvious that there was the clamour for Babyface was there so let's just crack on with it and it's since gone on comfortably to be the brewery's highest you know most decorated beer in terms of awards it's won um, including international brewing awards, multiple international brewing awards, gold, silver, and bronze. I think we've got in that. Yeah, across cask, keg, and Ca- yeah, across all three package types, which is really, you know, very proud of that. It's not just you know, 
been recognised for its cask version. Mm. It's across the board. Um, yeah, and it's got it's picked up the the largest traction in terms of um, the supermarkets it is listed in or has been listed in. It's our biggest selling export beer. Um, you know, it's something that we're very very proud of. Um, but yeah, initially it was homebrew, then reluctant introduction, and now it's it's very much it, Yankee is Rooster's original flagship beer of Sean's making. And yeah, like you, I think you said at the beginning, like it didn't really. F- when you look back on it, it feels like Babyface was kind of that a line in the sand um, without us really kind of deciding that that should be the case. Yeah, something I, I admire about your brewery is how you could have gone, actually, Yankee's not really us, we'll, we'll drop that, but you've, you know, it's still one of your best-selling beers, it's still a staple on cask. You know, if you come into Harrogate, you don't even have to walk 100 metres to get to the, the Harrogate Tap, and it, you said it's one of their best-selling beers. You can pretty much always find Yankee on cask in there, and it, they do a fantastic pint of it. And yet, you came in and you kind of gracefully brought in, from my perspective, this this beer that brought in your American, you know, you're both very into American beer like I am, and, and you put your stamp on it without erasing that legacy. But eventually you um, you outgrew that initial brewery. You're in Nairsborough, so for people who aren't, who aren't from around here, it's about half an hour on the train, maybe not even that. Oh, far. not even that. It's like 10 minutes. It's, it's, it's a five-mile five drive, you know. Sorry, I was just going to say, um, you say gracefully kind of, um, sort of transitioned yes. like, into into what we are now. I'd just say that actually behind the scenes, um, no, not that it's less graceful, but behind the scenes there was a lot of work going on in terms of the um, production equipment that we were using. We were modifying mm-hmm. um, and, and sort of um, slowly but surely kind of organically sort of growing and reinvesting and to, to sort of evolve um, for a long time, we, we felt we were, there was a frustration that certain trends were coming and going and we weren't, we didn't have the equipment, uh, whether it's the, the right FVs or um, kegging equipment or, or anything like that, mm. to achieve what we wanted to. So it, it, there was a lot of hard work behind the scenes sort of yeah. charting a new and path. It was lack of, lack of space, which also determined what we could and couldn't invest in as well. Um, and we doubled the size of the, in the first five years since we took over we doubled the size of the business in terms of um, production output but you know on a very sort of small scale and it was born out of I think really tapping in we touched on it at the beginning but ta- tapping into making people aware that there was there's a brewery on their doorstep because there just weren't people mm. that switched onto it um, so yeah it all kind of like around the time after the cans took off I mean they took us by surprise massively just how how ahead of the curve we were with that and just how mm, the clamour for them. If you remember, we'd, we'd brewed a, a batch of each and canned it and then um, Tom had found routes to market for it and I think they sold every, every can sold it like we, a weekend. We, we didn't even have any, in, in, we hadn't even any more fermenting thinking, let's get the next batch going. We, yeah. we, we were absolutely we were taken chasing, by surprise. We, we, we were sort of... And was this Babyface Assassin or Yankee? All three of them three. to start with, yeah. And then Babyface, you know, gradually sort of pulled away as the, the one that was, you know, the most desirable um, for people. But, yeah, I, at some point we were just chasing our tail for months. There was, you know, the lead times on those cans when we were first there for the mar- into the market with them was crazy. And then by about 2016, we'd started to realise we probably, we knew we'd outgrown that space. Um, but again, rather than rush into it, we we took our time to 
to figure out what we wanted to do and how we wanted to grow from there, which eventually kind of came to fruition in 2019. And you've moved here to Hornbeam Park, which is just right outside Harrogate, but it's you're a walk from Hornbeam Park Station, which you can get to from Leeds or York very easily. Yeah. And you found this this lovely site, and you could get some nice conical FEs instead of, I imagine, the old flat-bottom ones you might have been using previously. Well, yeah, interesting. The, the conical FEs are one of the first things that I introduced into the old brewery which is why the, if you look out here the, 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 they are quite squat and dumpy still because they were designed to fit into the old building which was not under a railway arch but it was an arched building um but yeah to well i mean everything we had every every bit of kit that we had eventually on the old site the canning line filtration rig and all of it everything was on casters everything that we bought new bit of kit the first thing i did was put it on casters because we just couldn't it was like a jigsaw puzzle, wasn't it? To, yeah. Uh, on a daily basis, you know, there was probably three hours of moving things just so we could do something and then move everything back three hours later. And yeah, so, so coming here is just, yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And, did, and you expanded the size of the, the brew kit as well from about, do you say 10 hectolitres to 30? No, I mean, I'll can go into the. Why don't you pick that up? So, um, the original kit that I was brewing on on the old site that we, we bought from Sean was a 25 US barrel kit. Oh, so not, not small by any means? No, not small. Um, and Sean was brewing, he'd converted it. It was a three vessel system. Um, so a mash conversion vessel, Lauterton and a kettle whirlpool. But he'd converted it to the mash conversion vessel was redundant. Um, and he, um, the Lauterton just became a uh, mash done, effect, uh, effectively, and then the kettle whirlpool, and he, he also changed it. Um, he wanted, still wanted to use whole leaf hops, which you can't really whirlpool. <laughs> so he he modified filtration inside the tank and did all of this, and it worked really well. He made some fantastic beers, as we know. Um, but that was twenty five US barrels, and he was brewing twenty five UK barrels on it. Um, and then we replaced. He had four open top fermenters at 25 barrel and we sold them and replaced them with five 30 UK barrel fermenters that sat on the same footprint, um, but cylindroconical, dish topped, completely close to the environment, um, which is what I, the way I wanted to go in this sort of consistency to approach of production. Um, so we, we started brewing, but then we were brewing 30 barrels UK barrels on a 25 US kit, which was, we sweated it to say the least, didn't we really? And, yeah. Um, so th those were already, those FVs were already in place. And it was interesting, it took, uh, so we're still using the same yeast strain, um, our house yeast strain, which... Um, was that, was that, did you take that on from Sean? Yeah. Yeah, and, and if you, it, I know if you, um, it, it will have originated from Thwaites, out of the 80s, because a lot of northern breweries, small breweries, use Thwaites strains. There's still a lot of breweries uh, in Yorkshire that I know use this. It, 
if you trace it back, it's the well, same you strain. You just disclosed that Yorkshire breweries are using a Lancashire yeast strain. It's, <laughs> it's, still, oh, it's just about Lancashire still, isn't it? Well, I was well it's not say, even not meant yet. It's, it's, well, <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. Burton but, upon Trent now, isn't it? But um, no, there's, a, there's it, it was quite good. There was, you know, even back at Daleside, um, there was there were breweries that, you know, we all helped each other out if our strains were struggling. Oh, but effectively, it was the same strain. Um, and you can actually trace it back to one of the original Whitbread strains, I believe, if you go further back than Thwaites. So, but it took, it was interesting, it took about six months for the yeast to start to uh, change its characteristic in terms of fermentation. So it was still, um, was still having to top crop out of a, a small man way. And, uh, you know, the idea with a cylinder conical, you, your um, end of fermentation, as you cool down, you, you collect the yeast from the, the bottom of the FE. Um, but it took about six, six months. That was a little bit painstaking waiting for, it was interesting to see the transformation, but... Um, Did it have an effect on your beers switching from the, those old FEs? No, the, the fer- fermentation characteristics were still uh, the sort of chart on the fermentation was still the same, but it just became a headache when we were trying to collect yeast. But it took about six months for it to change, and so whereas previously at the end of fermentation you still see a really big head um, to skim from, whereas now end of fermentation. Um, the, all the yeast is, is already down and settled at the bottom um, and it's the same strain it's just it was fascinating to um, you know to see that to see that change but I'm bloody glad it did because <laughs> I'd already bought the vessels <laughs> let's pause it there and leave the rest for part two, which you can find in episode 51, which fingers crossed by the time you've listened to this will already have been published. And if you're keen, you can head straight over and hear the second half of this fascinating interview. Thank you as ever for listening. I'll keep it brief now because I've already waffled on enough in this episode. But if you can support us, we'd love your help, whether that's subscribing to this podcast, leaving us a rating, or if you can subscribe to our Patreon and help support not just this podcast, but the written content we publish every week. You can do that from as little as a pound a month at patreon.com forward slash pellicalmag. That's it from me for now. I'll be back very soon with the second half of this interview with Tom and Ol from Roosters Brewery. I've been Matthew Curtis, and you have been listening to the Pellicle Podcast. Bye-bye.